While you turn to Judges chapter 10, I want to add my word of greeting. Those who have already heard the wonderful name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. I commend you for getting out and braving the elements. And I don't know whether it was some sort of uh, piety or loyalty or whether you were being driven crazy by having to stay inside all week. But whatever reason, we're really glad you're here. You've come to worship the living God with us on a cold January day. Uh, Before I read this text, let me just say that it, it paints a very bleak picture on a very dark landscape in Israel's history. And um, there are patches of God light there. And there is, of course, the great testimony that God is sovereign over all that darkness. We just sang about it. Uh, Though the eye of sinful men, your, your glory cannot see. Though the darkness hide thee. And um, sometimes we, we have to stare at something dark for a long time before our, our pupils dilate and we see what's really there. And that, that's what happens when we meditate on Scripture. There's a, um, a brilliant, brilliant writer who lives in Idaho called Anthony Doerr. And he wrote this amazing novel 10 years ago. Netflix made a, a four-part film out of it in November, and unfortunately they chose to put a lot of offensive words in the film that are actually not in the book. There were, there were many departures from the book, but um, it's a book about a blind girl in France during World War II and about a young German boy who was a genius of a uh, radio operator and how their, their destinies kind of crossed on a little town called St. Malo in France, and uh, it's all fiction, but Anyway, Anthony Doerr, I can't tell if he's a Christian or not. Sometimes he gives hints that he is, but he gives no hard evidence. He grew up a Catholic, and he grew up reading C.S. Lewis. And you kind of get the opinion that he really knows that Christianity is true, but he's too embarrassed or fearful to say it out loud. But anyway, he named the book All the Light We Cannot See. And I was thinking about that, that title and that, that book, um, I don't read that many modern novels, but I did read that book, and it was kind of overwhelming. And I thought about that concept, and, and basically there's, there's, we can't see most of the light, which is actually there in the universe. And we can't see most of the light in the Bible without, without the Spirit's aid. And sometimes we find that light in, in surprising places, and I was thinking about that when I when I was studying this chapter. It's a, it's a chapter that's almost never preached on. Spurgeon never preached on it. 63 volumes of Spurgeon sermons. Uh, John Stott never preached on it. It's never preached on at uh, All Souls Langham Place, this great Anglican church in, in London. And believe me, I looked. And, um, you know, I, I have some fear that the time I'm done, you'll think, well, I can see why it's never preached on. Uh, I... I hope maybe you'll, you'll say, uh, well, wh- why not? Why hasn't it been preached on? But anyway, I'm not going to read every verse of the chapter. I'm going to start in verse 6 and uh, read almost to the end. But um, if you're able, would you stand in honor of God and his word? I'm going to talk about God over the darkness, God in the darkness. This is Judges 10, verse 6. Hear the word of God. 
The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. The Philistines were attacking from the west, the Ammonites, which is basically where Jordan is, were attacking from uh, from the east. So it's from Lebanon and Jordan. They're converging like pincers on the children of Israel. Verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we're very conscious uh, as we come here today of your mercy. We're conscious of your mercy in the midst of pain conscious of your consolation in the midst of desolation. We've just marked a very cruel and painful anniversary. And we want to note that on that first anniversary, the pastor of our host congregation, Forest Hill Baptist Church, our beloved friend, Don Marston, who stood in this pulpit and preached last July, uh, joined our four friends around the throne on the one year anniversary of their entrance to heaven. And so we pray for this stricken congregation who shared their campus with us, who sold us their campus as they worship in the other room. We pray that you would fill the void that they're feeling so keenly right now and we pray that you'd supply what is lacking in the days to come. Maybe we can console them with some of the consolation that we've known. And Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you that um, you've given us the very word of God written. We want to know what it means. We want to know why it matters. We want the word of God to do its gracious, changing, transforming work in our lives. We want to see your brightness, your truth, your love, your presence over this dark landscape in Israel's history. 
We pray that you would make it happen through your Holy Spirit. We plead for it in the name of your Holy Son, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So when we, uh, we come to this text, I think one thing we need to note is the uh, authenticating honesty of Holy Scripture. And here's what I mean by that. The secular people, especially secular scholars, would have us believe that these stories are made up. When I was a student, I took a course called Religion 105. And I was taught in that course by two lecturers, one a professor, one a graduate assistant, who would smirk and roll their eyes when they would mention Christian doctrine. And what they taught me and what is taught in most places is that these are nation-building sagas in the Old Testament. They were contrived by the priests to fan the flame of patriotism in ancient Israel. And as I look on back on that, on that kind of foolishness, it makes me wonder if they ever actually read the narratives. I can also remember on many occasions and from many different media hearing um, explanations of why the West became great and the attributions to the democracy and the philosophy of Greece and the, the law and the jurisprudence of Rome and the religious genius of Israel, the religious genius of the Jews. And when you, when you read the Hebrew scriptures, what we see is the exact opposite. The exact opposite. You take a great patriarch like uh, Abram, he was first called in Genesis 12. So in the, in the generation that Moses wrote, the great villain was Pharaoh. But in Genesis 12, Abram, the great patriarch of the nation, left his wife in Pharaoh's harem because he was afraid. And Pharaoh comes out as being morally superior to Abram. It's impossible that that could have been made up. We could excuse Abram because that was the beginning of his pilgrimage. He was just getting to know this God who spoke to him in Ur of the Chaldees. But when he's nearer the end of his pilgrimage, 24 years later, and in the exact time he had been alerted, this is her fertile period. She will have the baby within one year. The last thing he was told was when. He did it again with a king called Abimelech in chapter 20. In chapter 26, Isaac did the same thing. And again, he was rebuked by a Gentile king. The greatest king of Israel, David, on a night in Jerusalem, proved himself to be morally inferior to a Gentile drunk. Uriah wouldn't spend the night with his own wife out of loyalty to David's cause, but David was willing to spend the night with Uriah's wife. You see, to, to suggest that these stories are, are nation-building fables is not only untrue, it's the opposite of the truth. We're told with brutal candor about the iniquity of God's people. We see it in the New Testament. 
I mean, there's no doubt that Peter was the foremost disciple. He was certainly the most talkative. And yet, he bears this stigma during his whole life of having denied the Lord three times, the last time with an oath out of cowardice. Now, can you imagine going through the Greco-Roman world and preaching here and there and, 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 in, and in Palestine with that stigma if it had been made up? Why would it have been made up? So this brutal honesty and candor on the part of the Word of God uh, authenticates the truth of the Word of God. We look at the text, we also see... Um, the, uh, the fact that there's no, there's no neutrality in the spiritual universe. You can't just not serve God. You know, one of the great answers to the question, religious preference in our day, is none. None. The godliest parents I know are devastated because three of their children check none on that questionnaire. It's the generation of the nuns. But it's impossible to be a nun. You're going to worship something. You're going to serve somebody. And it wasn't just that the children of Israel left off Yahweh worship, but they embraced the detestable gods of their enemies. Think about that. And there are seven, it's not just one God, there are seven sets of gods who are names. The, the, the Baals, the Baalim, the, uh, that's kind of a generic name for all kinds of, of agricultural gods. And yet they're, they're enumerated with seven iterations, the, the, uh, the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and Sidon and, and Moab and the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And you know, over a year ago when we first started studying judges, we ask ourselves, why? Why would Israel do that? How could that happen? You know, um, when we think about who these gods are and what, this, what these gods require, it's an astonishing thing. And what we said a year ago was that, well, um, their, their men seem stronger. And their women seem more beautiful. And their armies seem more victorious. And their crops seem more productive. So the inference was their, their, their gods must be credible. And so the, the apparent prosperity, the apparent current prosperity of the pagans had a greater impact than, than the, the ancient promises of God. And God's great inter, intervention uh, in the history of Israel... We have a psalm that's written about that by a man called Asaph, one of the minor uh, psalmists, but we see some of the psalms mainly in the 70s. And in Psalm 73, he said, what he's actually saying, I'll paraphrase it pretty badly, but 
what he says is, you know, when, when I see how good um, unbelievers seem to have it, 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 you know, it just makes me doubt. It makes, it makes me doubt my own convictions. When I see how great unbelievers, some unbelievers have it, and you know, there are no pangs in their death. What it means is their, their life is easy, and by the time they die, they leave their, this great estate to their children who go out and do the same thing. And I think, wow. Maybe there's something to, to their religion that I'm missing in my religion. And talk about the candor of Scripture. That's a pretty, pretty candid thought to make it into the Psalms. But then Asaph says, but, but I went into the temple of God. I went into the tabernacle of God. I, I saw what happens there. And I saw that death and the shedding of blood is, is required for every sin. And then I realized, no, they don't get away with it. And they won't get away with it. But the temptation is there to envy the wicked. And even to envy the wicked to the point where, whether we know it or not, we're worshiping their idols. A third thing we see in this text is we see, um, I don't like to use this word because it can be misleading, but I'm going to call it this. We see the emotions of God. God, get ang- God gets angry. Did you see that in verse 7? Israel was worshiping the gods of all the nations, but they weren't worshiping the God of their nation, the God who brought them out of Egypt. The God who rained bread on their camp for breakfast supernaturally every day. The God who led them supernaturally and visually by a cloud and a, by day and a fiery pillar by night. That God they abandoned for the gods of their enemies uh, and their neighbors. I don't like to use the word emotion because we equate that word too much with our own emotions. And it's something we talk about from time to time, and that is that, yes, we are made in God's image. That's true. But that doesn't mean that God is like us. He's not. One of the greatest examples of this, you'll, uh, well... I hate to use a word like this, but it's it's a very formal word. It's a word I've only seen in my life associated with theology. I've never heard the word pronounced in any other context but a context of Bible study. It's the word anthropomorphism or anthropomorphic. Here's what it means. It means sometimes we have to talk about God like he was a man. And the reason we have to do that is because we only have human language at our disposal. We don't have heavenly language. We don't have an experience or a vocabulary that can live up to the reality of what's really there when we're talking about God. And so when we, and and I guess one of the best examples of this is sometimes we see, especially in the older versions of our translations, we discover in the Bible that God repents of something. And, you know, there's an, and yet there's another verse that's where God says, I'm not a man that I should repent. Well, how do you put that together? That's not contradictory. That's complementary. That's illuminating. That's a clarification. And what it means is this. Because we're made in the image of God, there are realities in us which are like 
a reality, in, a deep, mysterious, perfect reality in God. One of those realities is anger. We know the emotion of anger, and that's the image of something in, in God. The reason it's dangerous to talk in anthropomorphic language is because in God, there are only perfections. We could just as well talk about the attributes of God or the perfections of God as well as we could talk about, and maybe more accurately than we could talk about, the emotions of God. I get angry because of my petulance, because of my sin, because of my impatience, because of my self-centeredness, because I think I have a right to something that I really don't have a right to, because I think I'm being disrespected or marginalized in some way. God's anger is a perfect and true and right response to some offense or some provocation, uh, but it's real. We will see another emotion which is, is actually rather strange in verse 16 when we see something like the impatience of God. It's called impatient in the ESV, his impatience at the misery of Israel. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But we see this, this display of God's anger. Let me just tell you that there are preachers and there are pulpits in this country, some of them prominent, dedicated to hiding a good deal of God's attributes, like his anger, uh, like his capacity for, for wrath. But those of us who believe the Bible... And those of us who have the assignment of teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, we dare not do that. We, we dare not do it. And when we think of uh, that this is not just about Israel, this is about us. We'll talk about that more in a minute in ap application. Uh, it's an important thing to note That God is omnipotent. And God can be offended. And God can be aroused. And if he can be offended and aroused by something his chosen people did in the generations where he was showing himself publicly, he can be offended and aroused by sins that I commit and by idols that I embrace. Because believe it or not, we have greater privileges than even Israel did. We also see in this passage uh, what we might call the severe um, fairness of God. And we see that in, in the dialogue. We see that in the prayer of Israel and the fact that God answers the prayer. You realize what a mercy it is when God answers a prayer, even when he says no? Just to show that he's listening? Just to so, show that he's paying attention? So when they get to the, the end of the road, I, want, I once heard Haddon Robinson say this great preacher years ago. He's with the Lord now. I don't know why it made such an impression on me, but it's always stuck with me. He said, when you choose one end of the road, you also choose the other end. And that road may look far different at the end than at the beginning. I've driven Interstate 40 all the way to California several times. I've actually driven it from one ocean to another. And uh, I don't know why, but 
I like Interstate 40 west of Memphis uh, much better than I like it east of Memphis. I don't know why, but um, it looks a lot different. It looks a lot different in uh, New Mexico than it looks in North Carolina. And uh, you choose one end of the road. And so when they were getting uh, 18 years into this road of of worshiping pagan idols, maybe they liked it in the beginning. Maybe they sensed some advantage from it at the beginning. They decided they didn't like it. And they began to cry out to the Lord. And the Lord says, you know, I've saved you. I've saved you so many times. I've saved you so many times from these nations who worship these detestable idols that you've been serving. And you know what? I'm not going to save you anymore. I'm, I'm done with it. Cry out to those idols. Let the idols you have worshipped and served, let them save you. Now, there's a, fo- there's a phenomenon in Scripture which we don't like to think about, but it's there. It's actually all over the Bible. And um, what it means is that God has certain limits. And it's hard for us to think of God in that way because in the physical realm, it would be more accurate to say in the realm of physics, God has no limits. And this is incomprehensible, but God is infinite. What that means is he has no limits in space. We cannot say beyond God and make a true statement. God is not a noun that can be modified by by the word beyond. And he has no limits in time. God is eternal. That's even harder to grasp because God has no beginning. You and I don't have the mental capacity to conceive a reality which has no beginning. But God is not a noun which can be modified by the word before. So in time and space, God has no limits. But in moral and spiritual terms, God has limits. And he's limited by his own perfections. He's limited by his own nature. Here's what I mean by that. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot love sin. Occasionally, an unbeliever will smirk and think that he somehow annihilated the very concept of God and shown that it's incoherent by asking an idiotic question like, well, you say God can do anything. Yes, we do. Well, can God um, create a boulder so heavy that he can't pick it up? Well, I guess God can't do anything then, can he? I guess your God is really not there. He doesn't exist. C.S. Lewis said, that doesn't prove anything about the absence of God. It proves that we also have the capacity to talk like fools about God. He said, you can contrive questions which have no possible answer. The example he gave, he gave two or three examples. I only remember one of them. He said, for instance, you can ask the question, how many square feet are in the color yellow? Now, when you ask that question, you haven't said anything meaningful about square feet or colors. You've you've proven that it's possible to talk nonsense about God. And one thing that this passage tells us, that there are limits to God's patience. We see that as early as Genesis 6, where Scripture says, I will not always strive with a man. We see that in that ominous refrain at the end of Romans 1, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. 
Sometimes I'm asked, why is this or that happening in America? And sometimes I'm honest enough to say, my fear is because we've been given over. And sometimes I hear people say, well, we're right for judgment. And I usually respond, if I'm candid, I say, no, we're in judgment. We're in a free fall right now. We're already in judgment. We've already entered judgment. And we see from this passage that God had reached the limits of his patience with Israel. And he said, you've been clinging to these idols. You've been worshiping these idols. Let them deliver you. Probably the man who helped destroy the faith of more people in the 18th century than any other man was a a Scottish philosopher called David Hume. He even shook the faith of Immanuel Kant. Kant once said, there are two things that fill me with awe. Der bestürnte Himmel oben, the starry heavens above, and das moralisches Gesetz innen, and the moral law within. And yet he wrote later that David Hume shook him from his dogmatic slumbers. He actually hurt the faith of a man as great as Immanuel Kant. David Hume uh, helped to destroy the faith of his mother, who'd been apparently a godly woman. But when she was dying, she mocked him. And she said, comfort me with your philosophy. Comfort me with your philosophy. And he couldn't. Now there's a bright star in a very mysterious verse near the end of this passage. And I'm actually going to read it from the uh, New American Standard to give you a little bit of a a different take on it. When we read it in the um, ESV, which is the version we usually use at harvest, verse 16, we see these words. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. I think that's a little bit mysterious. Um, Here's what the New American Standard says. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Isn't that amazing? an amazing thing. Um, Has it ever puzzled you that Jonah told Nineveh in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed and in 40 days Nineveh was not destroyed? Nineveh was destroyed about 100 years later. Have you ever puzzled over that or heard somebody teach on that? I think the principle is this. Mercy is always an option with God. According to his elective sovereignty, mercy is always an option with God. And when sinners repent, God often relents. I don't say that it has to happen 100% of the time, but it happened in Jonah's generation at Nineveh. And it happened in the generation of Judges 10. 
Because what happens in the next chapter is God raises up a deliverer. His name is Jephthah, one of the most complex characters in the Old Testament. And I will, I'll leave it to uh, Kenan and Jamie to explore the complexities of Jephthah. They, they be many. And I won't trespass into chapter 11. But this is the signal that God is inclining toward mercy toward Israel. And it's a brilliant, wonderful thing. <laughs> so what are, we, what are we supposed to take away from, uh, from this strange chapter? What are we supposed to get out of it? What are we supposed to, to learn from it? Well, I think one thing that we're supposed to learn from it is that we are... We have the aptitude to diagnose the darkness. When we begin to read uh, the Bible, we're told about darkness. And we're told about the creation of light. And I think many of you will know there, there are striking correspondences between Genesis 1 and, and John 1. Now, Genesis 1 tells us what the creation was like. John 1 tells us what the creator is like. And, uh, but John mentions darkness in verse 5 of his, his gospel. Um, he says that the light shone in the darkness, but the darkness didn't understand it. There are two ways to translate that. Either the darkness did not comprehend the light or the darkness could not overcome the light, could not defeat the light. When you move to chapter 3 of John, 319, we're told that men love darkness rather than the light. And that's a great spiritual tragedy. When you get to John 13 in the upper room, at the moment when Jesus identifies the traitor and he hands him the bread that has been dipped in the broth, um, as soon as that happens, Judas leaves. C.S. Lewis says the Greek is very dramatic at that point. I will have to take his word for it because he actually knew Greek. End day nukes. Judas departed. And then it was night. And then it was night. Because we have the light of God's word... we have the aptitude to diagnose the darkness. Because we have the power of, of God's Spirit, we have the responsibility and the capacity to defeat the darkness. We need to know what our vocation is in a dark and untoward gener generation as children of light. That's one thing that we that we carry away from this passage. The second thing I, I carry away is what I want to do is uh, I want to recognize the idols in my own heart. They're there. And an idol is a, is a God substitute. It's something we look to to do what only God can do. 
Maybe a bringer of joy. Maybe a bringer of peace. Pornography can be an idol. Drink or drugs can be an idol. Money can be an idol. Good things can be idols, like family. And this is why when there's a tragedy in the family, maybe the death of a child, maybe the apostasy of a child, certain professing Christians stop loving God, serving God, worshiping God. It happens all the time. I've seen it as a pastor many, many times. The Holy Spirit will be faithful to identify the idols in our lives if we ask him. The Holy Spirit will be powerful to deal with the idols in our lives if we allow them. When you find them, Christian, burn them and bury the ashes. Calvin said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. It was true in ancient Israel. It's true in the United States today. And I fear it's, it's true in my own heart. I think each one of us needs to cultivate a deep appreciation of our tendency and our inclinations toward idolatry. That's our default tendency apart from grace and apart from following hard after God. I think one reason you're here this morning is because you follow hard after God. I don't think you would have got, walked into the cold if, if you didn't have some commitment to follow hard after God. I pray it never diminishes. I pray that your fervor for God, your love for Jesus, your gratitude for the cross is never less than it was on January 21st, 2024. God grant it for his own dear son's sake. I think the third thing we need to take away from here is that, is that we, need to, uh, we need to embrace a prophetic role. What that means is we need, to, we need to be brave enough to denounce the darkness, to diagnose it and then denounce it. Now, until we defeat the idols in our own heart, we'll have no credibility in denouncing the idols of the culture. So we got to get that straight. Charity begins at home. I have to deal with my own iniquity before I begin to point out the iniquity of others. But, you know, remember what John 1, 5 says, the darkness did not comprehend the light. You know, we understand sin because we learn it in our own hearts, but also because we have the Word of God to tell us what this thing is tugging our hearts toward idols, tugging our hearts toward the wrong direction. Only a person who's resisted sin can know the strength of it. You test the power of a wind by walking against it, not by lying down or walking with the wind. Salmon who reproduce fight their way upstream. Dead salmon float downstream. And when we embrace the role of a prophet, the role of a prophet is to tell the truth and to warn. We're also embracing... um, unpopularity to the point of stoning. So we need to understand what, what, the, what the risk factors are. 
The reality, though, living where we live in the culture we live in, is if we know history, if we know history, there is no guarantee of the continuation of America's supremacy. No guarantee at all. And if we know theology, we know there's no guarantee of the continuation of the Lord's patience. And there are vital signs that God is withdrawing his patience and his grace. By the way, I mentioned a couple of those things specifically in the first service and some people got up and walked out. Maybe they were thirsty. But the timing was ominous. What does it mean to warn? I'm going to... I never read poems from the pulpit, but I'm going to read a poem. Uh, There's this unbelievably blessed pastor in um, Birmingham. He's with the Lord now. He started a church in 1960. It became the mother church of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. There's some correspondences between him and our own pastor. He was a fanatical Auburn booster, fanatical. But he was disciplined, and he never mentioned uh, football from the pulpit. But the day after the Iron Bowl, on those occasions when Auburn beat Alabama, he would always wear an orange vest. He wouldn't say a word, (laughs) but he would always wear an orange vest. So uh, his people knew where his, his loyalties were. And in 1995, I can't remember all the reasons why, because I usually work on Sundays, um, I found myself at his church. And there was a newcomer's class that day. And I went to the newcomer's class. We had a newcomer's class or a Discover Harvest class here yesterday. And uh, somebody in the Q&A session, somebody asked him a question. And he answered the question by quoting from a poem, word for word, without looking. And I'm not going to read the whole poem, and I did did change one or two words, because it's too long to read. But I'm going to share it with you, and it's, it's a poem about the end of God's patience. It's called The Line Unseen. It was written by a Hebrew scholar who taught at Princeton in the 19th century. He actually died in 1860, Joseph Addison Alexander. I think it's pertinent. I think it's pertinent to the text. Here it is. There is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path. The hidden boundary between God's patience and God's wrath. To pass that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It does not quench the beaming eye or pale the glow of health. The conscience may still be at ease, the spirit bright and gay. That which pleases still may please and care be thrust away. 
But on that forehead, God has indelibly a mark, unseen by men, for men as yet are blind and in the dark. How far may we go in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. Ye that from God depart. While it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. If you're here this morning and you've not cast your eternal hope on the blood that dripped from two wounds in the hand, two wounds in the feet, a gaping spear wound in the side, Don't delay another moment. To delay is perilous. We've not the promise of another minute. Turn. Turn from your idols and worship your Creator. You made those idols, your Creator made you, and He offers to remake you to the new birth that comes from faith in his son. I have a home in glory land that outshines the sun. No darkness there. I took Jesus as my savior. You take him too. Do it now. Amen.